0: fucking models, I've been popping bottles all night, playboy in the grotto, put it on your face, boy, alright.
1: good. Welcome back to another episode of Hive Mind, a pop culture podcast. I'm your host, Erin, and I'm so happy that you're here today. Today, I want to talk about creativity on the internet, specifically the way that over the past few decades, people have been editing, remixing, chopping and screwing some of our best biggest pop songs into Things that are like completely unrecognizable, spawning new genres, spawning new creative movements, um, all, all to make music something that's more inclusive and expansive than it previously was. Uh, the reason I'm getting here today is because I've been noticing sort of a new, um, a new phenomenon being adopted into the mainstream, which is like. These big major label artists releasing sped up remixes of their already popular songs. Um, This is a sound that you are hearing a lot, whether or not you're actively conscious of it. It's sort of like the Alvin and the Chipmunksifying of like normal pop songs. Um, You may recognize from TikTok the the huge come up of Miguel's "Sure Thing." Mariah Carey's It's a Wrap. Gaga's Bloody Mary, which is the song that kind of came to be associated with the Netflix show Wednesday. Normal songs that have been edited to be at 50%, like a 50% higher speed. (laughs) So it sounds like the, you know, Munchkins are singing it. Saying the word Munchkins in 2023 feels literally illegal. I'm so sorry. Why is that a slur? I'm talking about the Wizard of Oz characters. (laughs) I'm sorry. Anyway, speeding up songs is nothing new. Um, And even releasing them on Spotify is nothing new. I've seen this done in the past, but they're usually released by like a separate DJ, like under the DJ's name. Now we're seeing the artists themselves releasing the sped up version as sort of like a sister piece to the original song. Um, I feel like my first interaction with these sped up, pitched up, versions was uh, back when I was in middle school I was like really heavily into YouTube and this is like early YouTube before it became you know commercialized the way it is now and taken over by like Jimmy Fallon clips um, <laughs> and it was a lot of kids making um, essentially like pseudo TikToks where you know they were lip syncing and dancing along to popular songs We would just call them music videos back then. And it was like a really, it was super popular for my friends and I to do. And it was this sort of unwritten rule that before you upload your video, you have to go into iMovie or GarageBand or whatever and pitch up the song so that it was squeaky and fast because then the copyright algorithms on YouTube wouldn't take it down because they wouldn't recognize it as... It, like it wouldn't recognize it as the original song so you could sort of bypass the copyright rules that were really strict at the time like at the time if you uploaded something with copywritten music copyrighted music uh it, it would just immediately be taken down your channel would be shut down you couldn't monetize your content uh etc i don't know how much of that rings true anymore because i'm not really like deep in the youtube scene or what's left of it um but yeah, I mean, I definitely like no- that's kind of always what I assumed was happening on TikTok. Like the reason why, you know, when I'm hearing Mariah Carey, it's a rap, the reason why it was sped up was because, you know, some fan was trying to avoid a copyright restriction. I, d- I never really, cl- it never clicked for me that people were listening to these sped up remixes because they enjoyed them and because they thought they sounded better or more interesting than the original song so why is that why are these sped up remixes having a moment right now and where are they coming from what's the lineage i want to get into all of this today there's a really really storied lineage of these sped up remixes and um a world around them that i'm familiar with but i never really just i never made the connection you know um so that's what i'm going to talk about today i i do want to sort of preface the episode with this quote that i found in a billboard magazine article Um, it's attributed to just a major label executive it doesn't say who Um, but the person said is anything in its final form now or are we just putting out clay for fans to mold and I feel like that's really the heart of this all that's where this all begins sped up remixes as well as genres like hyper pop and nightcore which I'm going to get into all stem from this ethos of like creativity and the collaging of music um messing with and manipulating an original form to create something that's avant-garde and alt um we'll start with nightcore because i feel like nightcore is sort of like the the dawn of all of this um nightcore started in 2001 so like mad long ago this is like early early internet web one and It's essentially something that was started by these two Norwegian teens for a school project. They had no idea it was going to take off the way it did. And it's really wild when you think about it, because these two boys were in high school at the time in 2001. They are probably around 45 years old now. And Nightcore is still a major force on the Internet. To create a nightcore song, these teenagers revved up original songs to a whopping 180 beats per minute, which is like a sugar rush of a pace. Now don't go waste- people were like what what is this they apparently uh infamously got a bad grade on their class project but somehow one of the tracks ended up on LimeWire um a early aughts music sharing service um and the the file on LimeWire ended up being distributed far and wide um of course the alt kids at the time found and loved this music because it was weird and zany and a little off the beaten path and it was also like very very born from the internet and so people who were early adopters of being online found it to be exciting and maybe representative of what would come especially like electronic music fans. I feel like alternative young people throughout history are constantly looking for what's next, what's the future, and um, looking for ways to stretch out and expand culture. And, and this was just, you know, one of them. It's not like Nightcore was a completely original brainchild of these two kids. I think that they were loosely inspired by a lot of what was going on in Euro dance music at the time. I think a lot of what was happening in Nightcore can be traced back to a movement that was happening in the Netherlands in the 90s, which was called Bubbling. Um, essentially, it started when this DJ, DJ Morchi mistakenly played a record too fast at a club. To his surprise, it caught on and people were like, "Yo, this is kind of this is kind of it. And a whole scene was created around this idea of intentionally spinning your records too fast. It was something that was a little bit absurdist, a little bit strange, and like your parents would find it weird. So it was counterculture. In the UK, there are also genres like jungle and breakbeat hardcore, which are like um, popular amongst low-class urban youths that are all about sort of um, compressing and distorting music uh chopping it up making it just making it a little bit rougher and in texture a little bit grimier and um dance fans in europe really really liked those songs and those scenes as well these were scenes for outsiders they were scenes for really artsy youths people who are mentally ill autistic queer and trans I also think it would be remiss not to mention a holy trinity of songs that boomed out of Europe at the turn of the millennium. A Barbie, Barbie Girl. Girl.
0: In the Barbie world, life in plastic. It's fantastic. You can brush my hair, undress me everywhere. Imagination, life is your creation. Come on, Barbie, let's go, party. I'm a Outside flew his house with a blue little window and a blue corvette and everything is blue for him and himself and everybody around Cause he ain't got nobody to listen to listen to listen to listen. I'm the
1: too sexy. Songs were responsible for introducing the general public to the prankish, post ironic world of European dance music. Um, I feel like they are really embedded in my childhood as a 25 year old woman. And the majority of artists that now work in the hyper pop genre, which I'll get to in a minute, is sort of like the umbrella genre of all of this these songs are like the blueprint for them they were they were our earliest exposures to something that it's hard to tell if it's a parody song or not you know can we just have a moment for i'm blue i'm blue is in regular rotation for me that song is so fucking good (laughs) have you realized it's a song about like depression and isolation I'm blue is deeply poignant. Like we're sleeping on I'm blue as a society. I'm telling you, I've always like, I think I don't know if it's because of the original music video of I'm blue, which has like this cartoon blue alien little critter or the Disney channel movie, Big Fat Liar, where Amanda Bynes and Frankie Munez are like scamming this older villain character and they die his, they put blue dye in his pool water and when he jumps in his skin turns blue and then this song starts playing like i don't know i don't know what it is but i as a child had totally missed the angst of this song and i don't think i'm the only one because you know how there's that unfortunately popular bb rexa song where she's like i'm good yeah i'm feeling all right i'm gonna have the best fucking night of my life like that that makes me viscerally angry because she's like completely missing the grit of that song and the fact that it's like a Eurodance queer avant-garde classic like bb Rexa, you have to leave i'm blue to like depressed gay people please let us have this one thing anyway nightcore lived faceless on the internet only for a very long time and it eventually became synonymous with like the otaku anime communities um as well as k-pop and j-pop i think part of this comes from the fact that like nightcore sounds like video game music um it's also like very cartoony sounding like i said this is the same technique that was used to create the voices of alvin and the chipmunks and the the m word (laughs) these songs sounded cartoony and because they were not attributed to a particular artist because they were just like Put out under these anonymous YouTube um, creators' pages, uh, people started like imagining that they were sung by anime characters. Because there was a mystery to all of this music. The everyday layman could not understand digital music editing back in the early aughts. Nobody had any semblance of what that was and how people's voices were sounding like this and where this music was coming from. It just was like being brought out of the ether and it was glitchy and digital and uncanny. This uncanny valley is the heart of hyperpop. I mean, when we're listening to hyperpop music, we're searching for meaning where there is none. The absence of meaning is what makes it good which I guess is true of all absurdist and surreal art, where things really started to formalize and take shape was at the conception of PC music, this collective of artists helmed by musician A.G. Cook. PC music artists really had this reverence for early internet, and they played with the ambiguity between bedroom and studio production. Um, A.G. Cook also talked frequently at the time about like, um, how this music was like created to sound kind of bad and off putting. And there is this bratty, noisy, subversiveness to it that is almost punk in its, you know, um, motivation. Entry from the day that I discovered PC music, which was around 2014. Um, And it's really funny to look at now because I was so bewildered by it and intrigued by it. I was really fixated on this idea that the music that is currently deemed palatable and popular and normy at one point was so, so, so strange. And over time, what is considered fringe, eventually becomes the center. No music stays experimental forever because eventually our tastes and our sensibilities change. And it happens so slowly that we don't even notice it. I'm into this idea because I feel like it's the same thing that happens with our social norms. Let's take a really, really tame example um, about 30, 40 years ago, anyone who had tattoos was considered, like, a rebel or, like, a bad boy, (laughs) like, a motorcycle, like, a biker dude. And now, like, everyone and their mom has tattoos and shows them night and day, even at work. Like, my generation is completely unfazed by tattoos and everyone has them. In fact, I feel like it's almost more rare to not have tattoos than to have them at this point. What was once the fringe became the center. And this sort of thing happens with our um, ideas of acceptance around marginalized groups as well, which is, I think, why queer and trans people really, really take to genres like hyperpop, which are about pushing the limits in a way that is unpalatable and off putting for now, but not forever. Hyperpop refuses nihilism, it is hope oriented, but not in a cheesy way, in a way that's like, You know, I'm going to just make as much space for myself as possible and the people who get it, get it. And those who don't, don't. And I feel bad for you because someday this is going to be the shit and you're going to be late to it. (laughs) In 2015, Pitchfork wrote an article endorsing PC music, um, but the collective eventually sort of folded in on itself and dispersed elsewhere. And in 2019, in the very early days of the pandemic, Spotify legitimized the genre um, by creating a playlist called Hyperpop. This was really the first time that this language was used to describe everything that I'm talking about. Um, So it's like super recent verbiage spotify's hyperpop playlist was definitely piggybacking off of the overnight success of the diy duo 100 gex made up of laura less and dylan brady two musicians who really experiment with gender and gender expression
0: big game for someone in such a small truck oh look at those arms your arms look so fucking cute they look like little cigarettes i bet i could smoke you i could roast you and then you'd love it you'd text me i love you and then i'd ghost you the big Thank you.
1: a lot of these artists have talked about how pitching their vocals is like um, a form of gender euphoria for them now obviously it's a hallmark of the genre and everybody does it but there is something there about like manipulating one's voice to affirm their identity and it's exaggerated, so it almost functions like drag, right? Where a trans woman might want a higher voice, but obviously she doesn't want to sound like a Alvin and the Chipmunks character, but there's something that's like, it's delivered with a wink a little bit. It's camp. It's commentary. It makes you think about the limits of our bodies and our assigned genders. You cannot talk about trans hyperpop without mentioning the godmother of it, Sophie, rest in peace, who um, really, really carried the girls on her back um, in terms of like getting this genre off the ground post-PC music. My face is the front of shop. My face is the
0: real shop front. My shop is the face I front. I'm real when I shop my face.
1: She is one of the most successful and decorated woman producers of our time Um, and being a trans woman i think is even more impressive here because obviously we are living in a country where trans women are currently under attack what i love about sophie's music is that she creates these ethereal dreamscapes where gender is not the ceiling it's not the roof There was a very cool uh, moment at this past year's Grammy Awards where the artist Kim Petras, who recently collaborated with Sam Smith on the Billboard Hot 100 hit Unholy, uh, won an award and came up with Sam and spoke about how she was the first trans woman to ever win that particular Grammy. And she was like, Shout out to Sophie. Like, I wouldn't be here without Sophie. And I I think that's really cool because Kim Petras, like, she comes from a hyperpop background and now she has been legitimized by the academy and i don't know like sophie never really got that moment cuz she unfortunately passed away before it could happen so i thought it was really cool that kim used her moment on that stage to speak sophie's name and put hyperpop on the map and you know really pinpoint where it is that she came from Among cisgender artists, I feel like there's a lot of like dodging your obvious influences. Like when Ariana came up, she's like, no, like Mariah Carey, who's that? I don't know who that is. And Olivia Rodrigo's like, I mean, yeah, like I'm a giant Taylor Swift fan, but it's not, I'm not copying her music. Like, (laughs) it's like, yeah, girl, come on now. We all heard the bridge of deja vu. So I think this Kim Petra's Sophie moment was really representative of a beautiful ethic in the trans community of paying respects to your elders and um, just like being okay with being a student of what's around you and, and being new on the block and being indebted. I'm always so confused by other cis people who feel panic over transness when the idea of being trans, a root word which means to pass over, to cross, Is so freeing to even cis people like myself just like this idea that we're not limited by what we're given to be trans is to love yourself enough to be creative to love yourself enough to be entirely up to yourself those people especially if they're artists and musicians are trailblazers for us cis people like it's goofy if you're threatened you're threatened because someone else is more in touch with their freedom than you do something about it anyway yeah, so I was excited about the Kim Petras win, even though I don't necessarily love that song Unholy. I just thought it was a nice moment for the genre. Also, Kim Petras just announced that she is collaborating with Nicki Minaj on an upcoming dance track out next week, which I'm very excited about because I have always felt that Nicki had some hyper-pop sensibilities. I looked to songs like Bees in the Trap and Stupid Ho as my reference points, songs that people were really confused by at the time that they were released and now fit seamlessly into the jagged edges of this genre.
0: The is Nikki
1: has been there and she had an ear for it. So I love that she's collaborating with Kim. There's also other like old songs from that time period that are hyper pop now. <laughs> like Friday by Rebecca Black was the laughing stock of the internet, but it's essentially just a hyper pop song.
0: 7 a.m. waking up in the morning, gotta be fresh, gotta go downstairs, gotta have my bowl, gotta have cereal. Time is going, ticking on and on, everybody's rushing, gotta get down to the bus stop, gotta catch my bus, I see my friends, kicking in the front seat, sitting in the back seat, gotta make my mind up, which see, can I take, it's Friday, Friday, gotta get down on Friday, everybody's looking forward to the week.
1: Same with Grow a Pair by Kesha.
0: Last night I had enough of you. I put down the brakes and I could tell you took it hard. It was all over your face. It you was slipping and flipping, but here is the sitch. I signed up for a man, but you are just a bitch. You should know that I love
1: people say that hyperpop has already come and went and has already died, uh, which I think is a really fascinating take, uh, because I guess a genre that is based in acceleration would phase in and phase out quicker than most. Most of the artists who are saying this are former members of the collective Drain Gang, which I believe is now defunct. gang is like kind of odd future-esque or maybe they're more similar to Brockhampton because the majority of them are white but um these are all groups that are inspired by suburban malaise and are kind of alt because they're bored (laughs) you know what I mean and um artists that are part that were part of Drain Gang like Blady and eco 2 k were young like they were 16 17 years old and have recently come out as saying like well, I don't know if I want to make this type of music forever I don't want to be like p- locked in a box that is what we now consider and conceptualize of as hyperpop like I want to make what I want to make I'm so young in my musical journey and I love this idea of them just be- because they're bored of it being like it's dead hyperpop is dead it's over I just feel like that perfectly embodies what this whole thing is about anyway like once it's once it's too confining it doesn't work anymore because the whole point of it is that it's everything and nothing at all it has a low barrier to entry so these young people are getting involved in it but eventually it's going to run its course because old heads at spotify like they are now, are trying to box in and label what the genre is, and it fundamentally can't be labeled. Like, I can tell you a couple qualities that I pick up in hyperpop songs, but, like, ultimately, hyperpop is hyperpop because someone says it is. And a critic can't decide if hyperpop is good or not, because there's no such thing as good in hyperpop. It's just sound, and it's just play. That's why an artist like Emily Montez, a five-year-old, is one of the most successful hyper-pop artists.
0: My name's Emily and I'm five. I, I like playing Roblox and I like going outside. I miss school but I'm stuck inside. This virus has me losing my mind. Laying in my bed. Voices in my head. A broken heart. I'm missing you. I don't know what to do So I just cry I need you I'm outside, it's frozen But where is all the snow? I wanna build a snowman Please let it go It's my coronation Even though it's cold Use my imagination I'm only five years old Blew up on TikTok My rap is so fire Even Travis Scott dude is retired, got bars.
1: Twinkle, twinkle, little star. You don't even know who you are. I am five, just trying to survive. Obviously like Emily Montez has, there's lore behind her that you can dig into. Some people think, you know, she has an older sibling who is making her say certain things on the mic. Some people think that she is actually an older teen who is pretending to be a five-year-old. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter because hyperpop is about post-irony. Emily Montez could be written by an AI, and I don't think people would care. It maybe would even make it better because there's something uncanny and unexpected about that. Something subversive and absurdist. The avant-garde is what it is because it's not defined by you or me. It's defined by an absence of definition. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today. I love having you here. Make sure to check me out on Instagram at Hive Mind Pop Culture and on Twitter at Hive Mind The Pod. Thank you so much. Bye.
0: Lamborghini roll up in a blue bikini Bitches on the beaches looking super cute and freaky All my friends are princesses, we keep it whipped and creamy Ice cubes on our tongues because we like to keep it freezy Lendon Lamborghini, get out on the right side Should've stayed at home because my girl wanted to ride Looking laps and tasting plush, I'm feeling so alive Wanna take it to the highway, come on, let's go for a drive, uh All my life, I've been waiting for a good time a good Time. Let me ride, let me ride mm-hmm. my life I've been waiting for a good time